This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In 1970, 50 years ago, the iconoclast William S. Burroughs argued that virus is a language. Uh, somewhat t- sometime over that, uh, after that, Laurie Anderson, the uh, songwriter and performer, indicated that that was a transitive property, that language is also a type of virus. We now know and think of things like memes going viral, memes composed of word and image. And when memes concern health issues, we talk about an infodemic of virality rather than a pandemic. This is not new. We've been experiencing pandemics and epidemics of misinformation for a long time. Uh, In the mid-1300s, the Black Death killed as many as 20 million people. This panic evoked a variety of prejudices and rumors uh, that were consistent with existing belief systems and prejudices, leading to the persecution of Jews who were rumored to be poisoning wells as the cause of the disease. In 2009, the Egyptian parliament passed a law to slaughter all 300,000 pigs in Egypt, which, by the way, were useful in refusing in uh, getting rid of public refuse uh, and thereby controlling disease spread. And they slaughtered those pigs because swine flu, they believed, was spread by pigs. In the 2000s, the Mbeki government in South Africa promoted herbal remedies and derided the available pharmaceutical and therapeutic uh, uh, regimens, uh, resulting in, by one modeling estimate, as many as 343,000 lives that could have been saved had they used traditional methods. Uh, In 2019, uh, excuse me, in 2020, of course, we have COVID-19, and there are some cultural differences in the kinds of pandemic and infodemic. In Iran, there's widespread misinformation that gargling with alcohol prevents COVID-19. And as a result of that, as many as 5,000 cases, uh, including uh, ocular damage and deaths, as many as 500 or more, uh, have resulted from bootleg methanol consumption. Uh, in a country and culture that to a large extent doesn't allow drinking alcohol. Of course, in about the same time, we had the amazing confluence of events in which then President Trump suggested at a White House press briefing that there might be potential medical value in ingesting or injecting some form of disinfectant, such as alcohol or something else. He also touted hydroxychloroquine, which had little medical evidence in support of it. And of course, more recently, we hear about the anti-parasite and skin condition drug, ivermectin, promoted by social influence leaders with millions of followers, Uh, even though the National Poison Data System is experiencing a massive increase in exposure cases to this medicine, which was never really designed for that kind of consumption. One of the most classic instances of this Uh, is in 1955, the Salk polio vaccine, which was an extraordinarily effective process of preventing the uh, polio uh, disease, the scourge uh, of the country and of the world at that time. And yet at the same time, you had someone like Dwan Miller passing out leaflets in hallways and putting up on on windows and lampposts, referring to it as only God above will know how many thousands of little white coffins will be used to bury the victims of Salk's heinous fraudulent vaccine. Of course, Dwan Miller 
was doing this at a time that he was uh, uh, out on bail awaiting trial on federal charge of distributing similar libelous, scurrilous, and defamatory literature through the mails. And as we all know, although polio still technically exists, it has gone down from as many as 350,000 cases in 1988 to a mere 22 isolated in only two countries. And so in this process, we see that infodemics reveal a variety of parallels uh, over time. They have similar content of messages. They often imply some kind of conspiratorial influence. They have questionably credible sources. They're designed to polarize opinion and they rely on diffusion by kinetic or proximal uh, communication. And that's the most key difference between then and now that we have a different media ecology and that's different media ecology requires a kind of re-theorizing uh, of what's happening. In order to understand that, we have to first kind of define it. I use a neologism, dismisinformation. It's probably too cute by half, but it's both an elocution and a description. It suggests information that should be dismissed. It is a combination of disinformation and misinformation. Broadly speaking, it's any messages spread in a mediated context that represent a meaning complex in which a sender's understanding is discrepant, discrepant from or incompatible with a relatively consensual, informed, or expert evidentiary state. It's basically a message that I send that is substantially inconsistent or mutually exclusive to the consensual reality or best available evidence. Conspiracy theories are narratives that posit an alleged uh, a plot of some sort regarding the existence, of the existence of this secret plot between powerful people or organizations to achieve some goals, usually interpreted as sinister in nature, through systematic deception by the public. Fake news is a much more recent term, and there are many different definitions being offered. Uh, I won't go into the details, but basically it's dismisinformation that is presented as if it is in a news format, as if it has been vetted through some kind of publish, publication process. So how much of this is a problem? It turns out that only about 1% of sources may account for about 80% of fake news exposures, and perhaps only 1% of sources account for about 80% of fake news sources that are shared or distributed between people. Despite this, a study of over 38 million pieces of COVID-related traditional media content estimated that although only 3% of it involved misinformation, that information is disproportionately influential in the spread of misinformation. So one study, for example, found that anti-vax Twitter users were three times more likely than pro-vax users to spread unreliable information. And one panel of experts examined the situation and found that just 12 anti-vaxxers, 12 sources or persons are responsible for almost two thirds of anti-vaccine content circulating on social media platforms. We also face the problem of bots, which we did not used to face. So bots are basically algorithmic automated message capture software programs that take messages, adapt them, and then redistribute them en masse. Uh, uh, in the area of uh, tra Twitter traffic in general, 8 to 35% of all Twitter traffic is bot-based. Uh, 
Bots play a substantial role in misinformation spread. And in particular, for COVID-19, up to 66% of bots discuss COVID. And in one study, Twitter accounts with higher bot scores posted 27 times more about COVID-19 than those with low bot scores. So one of the differences between uh, the pandemic and the infodemic is that infodemics are much faster and wider than biological pandemics. Uh, there is some evidence in regard to false information infodemics or false information of uh, virality that false information compared to accurate information diffuses faster, farther, deeper, and more broadly than truthful information. The impact of this can be managed. There's one study that suggests that reducing harmful information by only 10% or limiting disinformation sharing to no more than 20 to 30% of the population could almost entirely mitigate the impact of bad advice on disease outbreak outcomes. Similarly, a study of 14 million tweets found that the spread of links to low credibility content which were likely to be bots, could be virtually eliminated by disconnecting a small percentage of accounts. So the conclusion of all this is that the amount and types of online disinformation are potentially infinite, but the sources may be relatively concentrated, identifiable, and manageable. So why do people believe misinformation, disinformation, fake news, conspiracy theory, and the like? So I have a 12 proposition or a 12 step program of theory to suggest a reason why or a set of reasons why. First, humans are limited in their cognitive capacity. We are limited information processors. We have a limited quotidian time window of conscious attentiveness that is, we have to sleep sometime. And we have a limited core of social relationships with whom to share information and attention. Thus, we live in a media ecology that is an attention economy. Specifically, ambient accessible information is increasing in both amount and exposure. As a result, we experience information overload. And in this information overload attention economy, we experience displacement of message attention. Every message we attend to displaces our attention to other messages. If a higher proportion of messages that we do attend to are dismissive, our information and communication become increasingly distorted and dysfunctional. There are other aspects and factors that are important to this media ecology. For example, there's a shifting reliance on social media. More people consume their news through social media or online news sites than in print form, long print journalism especially younger readers, and particularly regarding COVID-19. Somewhere around half of Americans get the bulk of their news from broadcast media rather than print media, and add to this the algorithmic targeting of social media organizations that they can now use to very slice and dice the market so as to actually generate pol polarization and to target exactly the right kinds of audiences for exactly the right kinds of social media messages, which is much harder in things like print journalism. In this process, we experience diminished editorial gatekeeping. 
So as media shift from interpersonal and mass communication to mass personal communication, which is more horizontal person to person rather than institution to person, mainstream media editorial safeguards and agenda setting and journalism begin to erode. Add to this, and partly because of this, we experience diminished media literacy. With information overload, and given a variety of cognitive biases and schemata that we use as kind of efficiency filters, information consumers invest relatively little time or effort in fact, into fact-checking or evaluating the validity of their information that they consume. Who has the time? Who has the wherewithal? Furthermore, we exist in increasingly echo chamber based systems. So information that goes viral tends to crowd out or inoculate against other information, especially within in-group affiliated echo chambers. As an example of this, the graph on the left displays a uh, fairly nice media bias chart from uh, AdFonts Media. And they're fairly transparent about their methodology is relatively systematic. And on the horizontal, you see the left to right political spectrum of bias. And on the vertical, you see basically the objectivity or legitimacy of the news source in terms of the news that it reports. Now, you're probably looking for your own media sources. Obviously, people can identify sources that agree with them, sources that, that disagree with them, and sources that are relatively neutral. And people may choose all of the above. However, as you look on the right, what you see is that they only share media within relatively identifiable networks. So certain news organizations and their stories get shared across people and across social networks with other people who are looking at the same news sources. And as a result, we experience this tribalism in which we are constructing socially our realities through a relatively insular social network and set of sources of media. Add to this the particular social context that we exist in in a pandemic. Stressful situations create uncertainty, which creates anxiety, which leads to motivated information seeking to help us understand the situation and to give us a much needed sense of self-efficacy or control over our lives. However, we're dealing with a pandemic in which the virus itself is invisible, in which most people who get the virus are asymptomatic, and in which we frequently do not see tangible evidence except through the media that we're exposed to of what the crisis is. In these kinds of contexts in which there are many different sources of information, the less available or definitive experiential information is personal firsthand experience, and the more complex and or ambiguous the crisis, the more voices there are, the more we tend to seek and search for narratively attractive and or credible source or group endorsed information. We look for the people we trust. Thus, anxious times and in fact impoverished contexts promote anecdotal or group affiliated credible information sources and narratives that are consistent with the values that our groups uh, agree with. In this context then, because groups are so fundamental to our identity, we tend to filter our rationality and our irrationality through our 
social belief systems and our social groups, fitting information that we selectively process through our group identities. So in a sort of viral model uh, or analog of this belief system, we might begin with people who have some kind of significant need for meaning in their life. Perhaps they are lonely, paranoid, narcissistic, or have significant social grievances against society or groups. And in this context, perhaps they need to belong and they need identity or meaning in their life. Sometimes they manifest these needs through trying to become a crusader or a hero, or that perhaps they become a martyr uh, in, in symbolically. And they develop this belief system, which is a web of beliefs. And in this web of beliefs, they become largely self-reinforcing. And in this context, then, they have an immunizing influence. And what I mean by this is that the virus has a self-protective process in which if I believe that there is a conspiracy behind the scenes controlling and manipulating events, then anyone who shows me or gives me contrary information, contradictory information, information inconsistent with my beliefs, instead of convincing me, it simply evidences and reinforces my belief because that's part of the conspiracy. That becomes a self-insulating belief system that is resistant to contrary belief and or evidence. Even if you then successfully knock down a few of these particular cell receptors of beliefs, you still have many other beliefs that are going to heal that fracture and essentially maintain the potency of that belief system. In a rather fascinating set of examples of disinformation's ability to engage in natural selection eventually through political party affiliation, on the left you see a study that found that there's substantially increasing social sorting and political polarization over time in the United States. And so that's basically how different you view your political affiliation from other political parties and how much you prefer your identity relative to theirs. And that's a pretty substantial correlation. Interestingly, it is mirrored substantially by reluctance to get vaccinated and party affiliation in particular for Trump versus Biden. So that you see the states that are substantially more for Trump are also substantially more uh, less uh, unvaccinated than the states that voted for Biden. The natural selection part of this is illustrated in the last two graphs, which illustrate that those people are also dying at a substantially increased rate relative to the vaccinated. So although it's kind of there are some ecological information discrepancies in these systems, to a large extent, what this suggests is that misinformation differentially kills its hosts. Now, as examples of this, I have a few video clips in which you will see people manifesting these beliefs in stark ways. What is this obsession with getting shots in every arm? A phrase that we keep hearing relentlessly now. I believe it's just more propaganda in training humanity. Please get through to these board supervisors who have honestly cut you off. They've cut you off. I think they're just best friends with Satan right now. How dare you call individuals seeking alternative treatments to this shot 
conspiracy theorists. We know ivermectin works. Please, no mandates. I will not comply with a mandate or a passport. This is not Nazi Germany. Is the world aware that the existence of contagious viruses has been scientifically disproven via control studies and electron microscopy? Are you aware of the cytopathic effect or CPE control experiment carried out by Dr. Stefan Lanka, which disproves contagious virology in its entirety? Are you aware that in commercial vaccine production, virologists perform uncontrolled experiments to prove the existence of the now disproven contagious disease pseudoscience? Are you aware that paying doctors, celebrities, and programming computers to lie even one trillion times does not produce a true and accurate scientific control experiment? Are you aware that HIV, COVID-19, and measles have been scientifically disproven? We'd like the FCC to know, out of your, out of your jurisdiction, that 5G RF radiation is pure insanity and represents a clear and present danger to all biological life, female reproductive health, and pediatric neurologic health. Take the towers down now. Now, the issues of today are not as clear-cut as genocide and slavery, but your complicity in forcing these mandates are a sign that you would be the ones cracking the whip and loading the boxcars. This COVID-19, I think, is a scam built upon scam. And there are people that are afraid to speak because the majority is brainwashed by what they're seeing on the news. Saying that this is malpractice on a massive scale. Let's just take, just take the PCR test alone. The CDC even admitted that the PCR test cannot distinguish between COVID, the flu, and the common cold. Therefore, why are we still using it? Maybe it's because Nathan Fletcher just is on the payroll of Abbott. This whole COVID has been nothing but a marketing campaign for the big pharma. So that gives you a potpourri, but I have three examples that are a little bit more focused in uh, their uh, uh, fervor. I've noticed that we're at a war. There's a, a hidden war that's been taking place, and it's becoming obvious now. I've noticed over the last 20 years that there's a big push to not not get sunshine to put on all that sunscreen oh you got to watch out for that uh, skin cancer so you got to have all that sunscreen and then when i noticed at the beginning of the virus nobody was talking about vitamin d there's a, a european doctor that was saying well, i don't know why they're not looking at vitamin d you know vitamin d is the thing that prevents it it's vitamin d is what you get when you go out in the sunshine that's the reason that the colds and viruses happen in the wintertime is because you don't get vitamin D. At least he was relatively nice.
And I'm pissed off. We should not be spending our time here and our life force energy fighting people who lack critical thinking and common sense, who beat the drum of an industry that has cured zero diseases in our lifetime, yet want to push a vaccine on us that they can't name one ingredient in that promotes human health. This is also an industry that has indemnified itself from damages to human beings since 1986. And this woman says, that's what we have to do to be healthy? Excuse me. Let's start looking at BMIs. Let's start looking at making ourselves a bad host for this and every other malady, okay? And frankly, I'd have a mask on my face too and I'd be hiding myself from society if I were you as well, okay? You all are an abject joke that I've had to be here and spend my time here, okay? This doesn't add up. And when it doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense, you know what that is? That's the definition of propaganda. And history will judge you all accordingly. Do you know what's funny? Saturn is in the same place as it was during the American Revolution of 1776, and you are the Redcoats. You, well, maybe not Jim. By the way, we love Jim, okay? What I'm here to tell you is that this is not the hill you want to die on, although a lot of you already bought and paid for. I can see it in the egomaniacal rolls of your, of your fake smiles behind your masks. And then one more that will certainly top the uh, other two. That's the wind. That's the wind of time. That's the wind of history. That's the wind blowing through your ancestors' bones, begging you to do the right thing. Sir, can you please state that your name for the, the audio record? That Sir. Matt Baker is calling upon from Ocean Beach. that is blowing through the black people, through the white people, through the Chinese people, through the Mexican-Americans, to the people that built this building with their bare hands to raise up this nation. They are begging you, and they are blowing through your veins, and they should be putting a tingle up the spine of your back, and they should be begging you to do the right thing. You are about to open a pit of hell. You do not get a vaccine passport put on us. You know, as the population who's in control, you know that the people or the politicians, once you get a power, you will never relinquish it. Do you think that the four feet of marble that holds you above high in this chamber will help you from the fate of humanity which you are unleashing. No! no! It won't! Your children and your children's children will be subjugated! They will be asked how many vaccines have you had? Have you been a good little Nazi? Hey, Fauci! There's been a lot of talk about the Nuremberg Code. Well, I brought you a copy. You are all in violation of Section 1. Yes, you, Dr. Wilton. You are in violation of the Nuremberg Code, which is international law. And the 
The definition is... Thank you, sir. Your time has expired. The definition, we shall not be coerced. All of this is coercion. The vaccine passport is coercion. And the penalty for violating the Nuremberg Code is... Violating the origins in the media. Please take a seat. Okay, I don't know about you, but uh, I could use a shot, but the kind that the bartender provides. So obviously the problem is entrenched. The problem is uh, heterogeneous in cause and will almost certainly require a heterogeneous approach on all fronts to start dealing with it. In terms of cultural and institutional commitments, I think we need a, a revived ethic of digital citizenship and literacy. So we need uh, print journalism to be supported, uh, long form journalism to uh, be supported, to promote non-oligopolistic and monopolistic media markets. We need to strengthen online tools for fact checking and warnings. We need to diminish the digital divide. Uh, and although there's always danger in providing greater access to various tools, as long as we provide good tools for more legitimate forms of research and or uh, fact checking and uh, branch libraries and so forth, it should assist. We should teach media, information, news, digital and scientific literacies at all education levels, K through 12 included. Uh, we should have, during crises, uh, trauma and culture-sensitive interventions where we meet people basically where they are. We need journalism and media institutions to be, become more accountable, as you've seen from recent discussions with Tristan Harris and Francis Haugen as uh, whistleblowers. Cyberspace is a government-granted resource and civitas, and as such, internet reach requires responsibility, and if not self-regulated, government regulations that are at least consistent with or uh, within the scope of First Amendment. Media reporting also should become more culturally oriented towards scholarly sourcing, standards, methodology, ratings, and perhaps even audits. At the disciplinary levels of social sciences and computer sciences and ge geographic sciences, we need more independent and funded big data research uh, to develop approaches to managing dis and misinformation and bots. Personally, we need to simply uh, accept the importance of taking on an ethical reflective orientation to the kinds of decisions we make about uh, what impact our information and our social media behavior has on others, to pursue media literacy on our own, to have uh, and enter into debates with a critical skepticism, and to engage uh, in argumentative, comp argumentatively competent behavior. Uh, I found it useful when arguing with someone who is a conspiracy theorist, for example, to ask them a relatively simple Popperian question. What fact, observation, or experience, if I brought it before you and, and showed you, would lead you to abandon your claims? If they cannot conceive of such an example, then you probably need to exit that conversation because they are arguing ideology or faith rather than science. It also is helpful sometimes to ask what review process or safeguards their sources were vetted through. Ordinarily, they will simply say other people followed that source. 
from an ethical philosophical standpoint, the system of ethics that's probably best suited for this particular set of problems is Habermas's ideal consensus and communication competence approach. Uh, clearly, he was more of a rationalist and an idealist than our current society uh, is compatible with. But at least he set up the ethical standards for which uh, we can consider the conditions for an ideal speech, speech situation. In this kind of context, the scientific community serves as a vanguard for deliberative and democratic society. And in this context, competent communication seeks to be parsimonious and efficient. It seeks to be honest. It seeks to be relevant. And it seeks clarity. And these are possible, and these are the kinds of things that are taught to crisis communicators. We generally have a fairly good model for communicating. We now need to start uh, combining this communication process with uh, a set of other commitments as indicated previously. This is an old problem. Even in the 1790s, you can see the kind of chaos that was depicted regarding the first vaccines and, and the extent of social kind of disruption and uh, opinion formation that surrounded it. And even as late as the 1930s, before this current one, you see very similar typologies of resistance that we see today. The anti-vaccinationist, the fattest, the careless, the anti-everything, and in the other cartoon, the ignorant, the bigoted, the careless, and the innocent are all groups that we can point to in today's society as depicting that we have not gotten to where we need to get in terms of this misinformation. These are a few of the sources that I have uh, uh, worked with other wonderful colleagues on uh, that uh, have led me into this area. And I, I want to thank the center and uh, uh, Dr. Hightower for their hospitality in inviting me to this. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.